Most agree the best Randwick Guineas winners to date have been Weekend Hustler, It's a Done Deal, Kemantari and The Autumn Sun. But it's worth remembering the 2022 winner Converge defeated Animo. The race superseded the time-honoured Canterbury Guineas, which was inaugurated in 1935 and won by Hadrian. Big name winners thereafter were Delta, Todman, Martello Towers, Imogeel, Viander Cross and Octagonal. Between 1985 and 89, four fillies won the Canterbury Guineas. Spirit of Kingston, Longshot Dolcezza, Brilliant New Zealander Tidal Light and Robert Sangster's Riverina Charm. It was then nine years before another filly won, and that was Tycoon Lil for Colin Gillings and Grant Cooksley. Easily the most successful Canterbury Guineas trainer was Tommy Smith with an amazing 11 wins. The most dominant jockey was George Moore with six. The last winner of the old Canterbury Guineas was Jim Carew, trained by Bob Thompson for the Banjo Club and ridden by Glenn Boss. Inaugural winner of the Randwick Guineas was Hotel Grand for Anthony Cummings, Jay Ford and the Bangalore Stud Syndicate. It's hard to believe the 19th edition of the Randwick Guineas is coming up on March 9, supported by the Group 1 Canterbury Stakes, as the Sydney Autumn Carnival gets into top gear. Globetrotting jockey Brent Thompson was 42 years old and had just completed a successful stint in Macau when he decided to call time on a brilliant riding career in the year of 2000. A career that had brought him somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 winners, 54 Group 1 victories around the world and the opportunity to ride some of the most elite horses of the era. On returning to Melbourne, Brent was approached by New Zealand bloodstock who were looking to appoint an Australian representative. Who better than a well-respected former jockey with many contacts at home and overseas and a sound knowledge of the racing industry? 24 years on, he's still based in Melbourne and still enjoying a wonderful association with the highly successful Auction House. There was a buzz in Melbourne racing circles in the spring of 1975 when Kiwi trainer Wally McEwen arrived in Melbourne with his Cox Plate candidate, a tall, gangly chestnut entire by the name of Fury's Order and a 17-year-old jockey called Brent Thompson who'd been champion New Zealand apprentice the previous season. Unfazed by the enormity of the occasion, Young Thompson skillfully navigated Fury's order through atrocious weather and very heavy going to win that iconic race. Everybody knew it was only a matter of time before this young rider would be snapped up by an Australian stable. I'm looking forward to taking a trip down memory lane with the man whose racing journey began in the lovely North Island city of Wanganui. Brent, Great to catch up. Thanks for your time. John, uh, many thanks. And uh, my, my goodness, it's quite a, quite a build-up. And uh, I hope I can do your podcast uh, justice. It certainly will, Brent, uh, by a country mile, as they say. You know, I looked up your age the other day out of sheer curiosity. 
and I was stunned to learn you've turned 66 impossible. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm lucky. I, I am well, and I, I uh, touch wood, and uh, and I don't certainly feel my age. Um, uh, I'm pretty active, uh, um, you know, fitness-wise, and um, yeah, I enjoy playing um, a good bit of golf. Um, so yeah, look, I, 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 I feel like I'm a, a young. Sixty-odd-year-old, um, um, put it that way, John. Absolutely. You know, when that contract with the Macau Jockey Club ran its course, you seemed to be at sixes and sevens for a while regarding your immediate future. You were getting older. You'd been out of Australia for a long time, all up, and the thought of starting all over again didn't appeal. It was time to walk away. Yes, it. it, it it sort of it was a decision that I pondered over for for a little while. I didn't discuss it with any anyone. Um, and uh, um, the the the, re- the reasons um, of giving up then was I'd been, as you rightly said, I, I'd been away for quite some time to reboot my career and um, in uh, in Australian racing at my age, I felt was going to be very difficult. Um, Places like Singapore had taken themselves away from the Malaysian Racing um, Club, and um, they had probably more jockeys than than horses. Mm. Hong Kong wasn't an option because I'd ridden there previously um, in my career, and uh, for those that had ridden there, they weren't really going out of their way to take take them back. They wanted sort of new blood, for want of a better word. Mm. Um, and so that wasn't an option. And, look, I didn't really see any 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 other way. Um, so um, give, uh, having said that, I didn't have the B plan either. Um, no, no. You know, that, that's, that's never an easy one. Macau Racing was vibrant during your time there and you won some really good races. One of them was a walk in the park on a horse called Shireen Champion in the Macau Derby. He won by a space. Yes, he he was. I got there to Macau, and and um, uh, Johnny Egan was riding there, the um, Irish English jockey, and um, he had to go back to England to ride. And he pulled me aside, and he and he said, Brent, uh, just just don't don't worry about getting on another horse in, in the Macau. Cow Derby, this horse will just just win, mm. and he'd put my my name forward. Um, I just said, uh, yeah, certainly if, that, if that's what you said, uh, say say, John. Um, I knew nothing about the Macau form, obviously, so I was guided purely by him, and um, I I won two or three races, maybe two races leading up to that Macau um, Derby. Mm. It was a wet day, he enjoyed wet ground. And uh, I think he won by maybe minimum of six six lengths. Yeah, um, he, he was actually formally trained by um, Sir Michael Stout, I think. Um, mm. uh, and uh, um, but uh, yeah, um, so I, I I had pretty good run leading up to that, and that same owner had a, quite a few horses going well at the same time. So I enjoyed a pretty purple patch. Um, um, leading up to it, and that probably culminated in it. It was uh, nice to win the derby there. Mm. Well, it's on record that the last winning ride of your career 
was on the Typer Racecourse in Macau. The horse was owned by Ron Duffercy's brother, Rod, and was trained yes. by an expatriate Aussie trainer, Gordon Benson. Yes. I, when I first got to Macau, I'd, I'd heard um, of the name Gordon Benson. I'd never met Gordon in New South Wales. Um, and uh, we immediately struck up a good friendship and uh, um, I wrote other winners for Gordon as well. But when I called time, he was the first person I I, I spoke to. Um, um, but on that particular, the, my last winning ride, um, and, I, and I think if I remember rightly, uh, Rod was definitely there cause, and uh, maybe, maybe Ronnie, I'm not quite sure, but... Mm. Um, um, their colours were green and black. Um, uh, Checks. Checkered colours for yeah. memory, yeah. Very bright and, colours, um, yeah. Yeah, and he was a beautiful horse. He, ex- he was, I know, I just can't for the life of me re- re- remember his name, but mm. he was formerly trained um, for them by John John Hawks and they sent him up there, but he was a, he was a gem of a horse and mm. I think I gave him a 15 out of 10, 10 ride too, John, on the day. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> well, I know your role with New Zealand bloodstock is multifaceted. Yearling sales, stud farms, yearling inspections, race meetings, promotions, public relations, you name it. Yeah. Uh, so so when I came back to Australia, I, um, as I say, I didn't have that B plan and, and then was... Um, uh, not not immediately offered the job, but asked to go to New Zealand and have a me- meeting, mm. of which I did, and um, and pretty much that that job was cemented there there and then. Um, uh, I've been in the in the in that position um, uh, since then, so at least twenty three years, uh, and. Um, uh, look, uh, I guess you know uh, it's it's been a a, a, a wonderful. Um, uh, place to be for for me um, because um, I was always interested in, in breeding anyway. Right throughout my career, always sort of had had a fair idea of pedigrees. Um, so that sort of obviously plays part of uh, your, your your role in the in the business. Um, mm. And I, well, um, I in fact rode one of Sir Peter Vellas and his mm. brother. Um, the late Philip Valo, um, one of their very first horses, a horse called Master Plan that Laurie Laxon trained. Mm. Um, and uh, it's quite significant when you think of Master Plan because at the end of the day, they end up buying New Zealand, uh, buying the, the the business from Wrightsons and turning it into New Zealand and bloodstock, mm. um, privately owned uh, by the two brothers. And, and yeah, so I, I, I was fortunate. Uh, also... Um, it, 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 the job itself is, you know, um, suits a, suits suits me. Um, I ho- hope that I do a good job for them, um, and it's you know looking after their their uh, clients and 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 new clients hopefully. And uh, um, obviously, I have to go and inspect uh, certain yearlings in Victoria. Mm. That might be entered for our sale, so that's another part of it. Um, I attend racing regularly in the autumn and the spring, go mm. a bit quiet in the in the winter for obvious reasons, um, mm. and uh, and attend uh, our ready to run sale and our uh, main sale, which is um, the the uh, Karaka yearling sale, end of uh, January, beginning of February. So mm. um, yeah, that's 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 
sort of it in a nutshell, but um, but uh, it's a yeah very satisfying job. Let's go back to early days in Wanganui. Your late dad, Kevin, had been a successful jockey and he was running a proactive training operation and obviously he signed you up as an apprentice. Are there any negatives in being indentured to your old man? <laughs> there was quite a few, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was pretty tough, tough boss. Um, mm. not, not ideal in some ways, but... Uh, you sort of later on in life understand that um, we also had other, other apprentices too. So I guess he couldn't seem to seem to be, you know, lenient on 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 me. Uh, mm. But um, yeah, I mean that was probably the hardest part when you're w- working for your father. Uh, but he was, a, you know, he was a former jockey himself. He was um, uh, uh, obviously turned to training later um and never had a big team but you know probably about max 30 horses yeah i'd done all the pony club stuff leading up to it and um Mm. it was a bit of a natural progression for me i only ever wanted to be a jockey Mm. and uh and it um you know it all went hand hand in hand so when i was 15 turned 15 i had to give away the the, the shows and the hunting and all that that stuff and uh, mm. and but the background of, of pony club and and riding around the shows riding around in hunts um, with you know really good people like the Myers family to name mm. just one family in, in the Taranaki and and Man- uh, Manawatu region mm. um, so I, you know it was a great experience a great learning curve. Um, which I think um, was a great foundation for my my career. Really, I, I, I wouldn't have done it any other way. Mm. Um, so, so uh, you know, that was fortunate. I always had good ponies, and uh, and even rode other people's ponies when they grew grew, grew, grew out of them because I it was always you know relatively small at the mm. time. You travelled a fair way for your first day at the races. Your dad accepted with a handful of runners at a place called uh, Waipakarau, and I hope I've yes. got that right on the east coast of the North Island. Your first ride on the day brought no joy, but at just your second ride, a miracle happened. Up you bobbed on a mare called An Illusion, trained by your dad. Yes. Um, why, you nailed the name, Waipakarau. Um, it's sort of towards Hastings between... And, uh, between uh, 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 logistically, between say Palmerston North and 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 the Hawks Bay, uh, it was they were, hosted a good sprint race that that uh, that day, and my dad trained that mare, um, an illusion who was pretty exceptional, and he obviously set her for that that race. Um, I didn't have a I, she was to be my first and only ride of the day, but in those days uh, you didn't have to declare and. I I was given the opportunity to ride a um, horse in an earlier race and took it. Um, mm. It was a, it wasn't the easiest of tracks to ride, so I think in the end of the day the choice was right. Mm. Would have been fantastic to have my first ride as a winner, but at least I had the experience of going around the track and um, and whilst it was unplaced, um, she duly won, and uh, that that was uh, me on the way. Mm. You'd actually ridden Fury's order in a race before the decision was made to take him to Melbourne for the Cox Plate. 
Yes. The, um, in those days, they used to have an inter-island, inter international, uh, sorry, invitation race. Mm-hmm. And um, as uh, what they did was they drew the jockeys against the, uh, the horse, which was a bit unique. Um, and Marble fell my way that I ended up on Fury's Order, who was, you know, obviously a star at the time. So, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, you know, it's... Um, Lux of Fortune, and he he won on the day, and uh, and uh, clearly I was only seventeen. Um, mm. The the owner saw fit for me to um, ride him in a, ride him in Australia, which um, oh, I suppose I, I suppose I was surprised as well. But uh, mm, mm. Um, yeah, it was a big uh, it was a big call on his behalf. Um, yeah, to have well, an apprentice jockey riding in, in in the biggest race in Australia, biggest weight for age race in Australia. Despite being ridden by a 17-year-old unknown, he went out at 7-1 to in the Cox Plate in teeming rain and on a very slushy track. You raced just a little worse than midfield, I recall. At what point did you think this is right in the finish? I think right on the point of the bend, John, um, because we're out in the middle of the track, uh, I can honestly say you couldn't see much because the, the track was so atrocious and still raining during the race. But um, Ki- Kiwi Can was, I thought, the horse, the main opposition, and he was uh, he was in the middle of the track and in search of the what might have been the best ground, get, ridden by a great weight for age jockey, mm-hmm. Roger Lang. And so I had him in my sights, but I knew that I couldn't um, go round him in, in order to win the race, and so right on the point of the bend, instead of going going round and trying to get, go outside him, I just cut straight to the inside fence, and uh, mm. um, it, it probably won won me the race because. Oh no doubt about you know, it! You, fence, you, yeah, you rounded Kiwi can up very quickly once you went to mm. the fence. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think I could have beat him if I went round him um, because, you know, uh, uh, like both of them would have been, you know, stride for stride. And uh, uh, whereas when I cut to the fence, it made up that ground and I had the fence as a guide and mm-hmm. and he probably just worried Kiwi can. I think he won by about a length and a half the, at the end of the day. Um, and drawing you know, clear uh, on the line, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... So, um, well, I don't know what I thought after <laughs> after mm. that. I, I know I was pretty exhausted, probably mm. mentally and physically. Absolutely. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said, youth is wasted on the young. And by your own admission, you really didn't grasp the significance of what you'd done. A cox plate at yeah. 17. Quite unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I I don't think I really grasped it until I went back 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 to New Zealand um, after the spring carnival. I I think it sort of then set in. Uh, I, I I I think I was still think wa- waking up thinking I was I was dream- dreaming what what took place. Mm-hmm. But when I got home, and of course you know uh, even the media over there made a fuss of it and mm-hmm. and and so and I think that's when probably the uh, the significance of the cox plate set in and then you know later I think it was became more and more um 
um, in, important on the Australian racing calendar as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think th- then, and especially when I came came to Australia, maybe the the for the, for the second time without a ride in the Cox Plate, but um, you know, then I firmly understood how important that race was. Mm. During that first trip to Melbourne, those boyish good looks of yours earned you a nickname which quickly gained prominence. In fact, friends still address you by this nickname. Who was responsible for christening you Babe? Um, that's that's an easy one to answer. Keith Hillier came to New Zealand to do, and to Whanganui to do a um, feature on me um, leading up to coming over for that Cox Plate. And he... He he named me, um, uh, gave me that nickname rather, mm. uh, and and after the Cox played it 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 it, it stayed. Uh, yeah, most of my my friends um, and even other people, you know, even that um, you know, occasionally see someone on the street and they they'll call, call out the babe. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, it's uh, yeah, it's amazing how it's how it's stuck. Um, oh, it certainly and, did. Uh, yeah. Took off yeah, like a prairie yeah. fire. <laughs> <laughs> so the legendary I, 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 racing writer Keith Hillier is the man yes, responsible. Yeah, he's he's, a, he's 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 totally responsible for that. And uh, mm. yeah, it, it, it's funny sometimes you're at a restaurant and 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 having having lunch and people over here here mates calling you the babe and they wonder what. <laughs> um, Wonder what's going on. Yeah. What's a, a, a term in de- of endearment, or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're looking around for a female on the t- on the table. Of course. <laughs> well, you were in and out of Melbourne for particular races over the next couple of years, and in 1977, something happened that changed the course of your life. How did you get on Family of Man in the 1977 Cox Plate? I'd come over to ride uh, a horse called Royal Cadenza um, for the Cox Plate, and uh, anyway, he he came over and he didn't look good. He raced accordingly, um, and anyway, leading up to the Cox Plate, it was a bit you know they weren't convinced that he'd run. I was staying uh, at a Kiwi jockey. Uh, 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 expat uh, Graham McGleish's place mm. at Mornington and and anyway the phone goes I think it was um, it was definitely in the evening mm. and George Hanlon had tracked down where I was st- staying and he asked if I could ride fa- family a man mm. um, I said I'd just have to check with the connections where the Royal Cadenza was going to start Um Anyway, to to their credit, which you know, um, they said, uh, "Look, undecided." Roger Lang was there. If if they did 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 start, he could ride it, and so I was free to take the ride on on Family of Man. So that was like on a Thursday night. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, obviously, I was I was happy to be riding Family of Man because the other horse certainly couldn't win the Cox Plate. No. And Family Man was one of the key chances in it. Oh, yeah, great horse. He beat Raffendale, who'd won the Epsom a yeah. couple of weeks earlier. You rode the horse in the Melbourne Cup. He finished midfield in that, and it was a year before you got on him again for a win in the McKinnon Stakes, in which he beat a good Kiwi mare, Lamur. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't write him uh, like I wrote. Yeah, as you say, I wrote him in the Melbourne Cup. Um, he 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 obviously couldn't stay two two miles. He he ran yeah. as good as he could for mm. as long as he could, um, and he was there probably until about the four four hundred meter mark. Uh, but uh, he was a. I, I can honestly say he was one of the most magnificent. Um, horses I, I rode throughout my career. He was a thorough mm. gentleman, even as an entire. Mm. And he was just a beauty to ride, um, easy to ride. And, uh, you know, he, his CV beat some very good horses over the, over the years. Mm. Oh, he sure um, did. Amazingly, yeah. it was another two years before you got back on him again. And by mm. then, he'd been purchased by Robert Holmes at court. You were the jockey when Family of Man had his 78th and final race start at Pinjarra in a race called the Sunspeed Millionaire Sire Stakes, and you were so happy to get him over the line. Yeah. It, it, I was in Perth riding, and uh, uh, George again tracked me down. You know, was, Obviously, there was no mobile phones in those days, and... Uh, he, he tracked me down uh, to wherever I was staying, and and he said to me, uh, "Boy, what are you doing on? I think it was Wednesday or Thursday." Mm. And I thought he wanted to go and have lunch somewhere, mm. and uh, and he said, uh, "I said, oh, what do you got in mind, George?" He said, "Well, will you come to Pinjarra and ride Family Man in his last race?" I said, oh, "I would certainly love to." Oh yeah, sure. And uh, mm. yeah, and uh, in fact, Bill Reed who owned. Dulcify drove drove me out there. I didn't know where Pinjarra was from Perth, mm. and uh, but um, yeah, um, he was. Uh, that was his very last race, and he didn't have to go too far. I don't think to Hatesbury Farm, where he was about to, to stand as at start, having been purchased by Robert, mm. Robert Holmes of Court. And look, he he won the won the race, but he he was on pretty tired legs, and I think he was mm. pleased it was all over yeah. as, as well. He lasted home and beat. Beat Brecon Castle, but mm. he was um, he was on his, on his uh, you know last legs in terms of uh, you know seventy eight starts. That was amazing, you know, to keep an entire yeah um, go, going as long as that. Anyway, John, you know, mm -hmm. great credit to uh, George Hanlon. Mm. But it was a great thrill, I must say. It was a, you know because he was such a wonderful horse, horse to me, and yeah. you know um, to, to win at his last start was enormous. Mm. Brent, well, I've got a million questions, so we're going to have to quicken the speed a little here. Mm. You, you had rides at the Wellington Cup meeting in 1978, and that meeting was attended by several Aussie trainers who were over for the Caracas sale. One of them was Colin Hayes, who plucked you out of the jockey's room and made you an offer that left you gobsmacked. Yes, he did. Uh, I, I was uh, um, sitting in the jock's room, didn't have a ride in a particular race, and uh, the doorman come and um, asked me to come out and meet Mr. Colin Hayes, and I thought someone was uh, kidding me. And uh, anyway, I did go out there, and lo and behold, Colin Hayes was standing there, and we sat down, uh, and he offered me the job um, uh, as Melbourne jockey. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, to, to say I was gobsmacked was an under, understatement. Um, my only, I, I just said to him, look, uh, as my father was still my my boss, um, I just have to give the courtesy, uh, him the mm -hmm. cur courtesy to uh, agree, agree to that, which obviously was a 
you know, uh, easy one. And, uh, yeah, and go, so go for it, son. So I went to the sales the next day at Trentham and, uh, and saw him and yes, it was, uh, it was sealed then. Uh, Jack Elliott had the, um, uh, he had the, the, the story on it, which he, uh, when he got back to Melbourne, uh, he was over there as well. He, mm. he announced that, um, in the, in the Sun newspaper, um, or the Globe, which it, whether I can't, can't remember. Mm. Um, so, um, yes, then I went there, I think February or March, um, that year. Yep. Well, it didn't take you long to repay Colin Hayes in spades. You won the Cox Plate for him later that year on So Called, who'd had a pretty hard run from a shocking barrier in the Caulfield Cup, but he proved his toughness by backing up and he brilliantly won the Cox Plate from your old mate, Family of Man. Uh, Now, Dulcify, Brent, you had your first ride on Dulcify at his fifth race start in the Greenvale Handicap at Mooney Valley. He ran third. A week later, he beat 17 rivals in the Victoria Derby. Did you have any runners or any worries in the Derby? No, uh, not from memory, John. He, he ran ran really well that day at uh, Mooney Valley, and that was my first sit on him. Um, and uh, he, he felt like he was a real chance in the Derby. Uh, and he'd come out and, you know, uh, pulverised them, really. Mm. Uh, he he show, showed his his class in that race and went on to be you know an outstanding racehorse as as you know. Colin ran him in the Sandown Cup in which he was beaten. Then he took him to Western Australia, where he ran second in an eighteen hundred metre race at Ascot, and then was unplaced in the Australian Derby. You didn't go with him. John Miller rode him there. But um, And he had a break after that, but he wasn't out long, Brent. He was back at the races in about eight weeks. He was unplaced over a mile at Caulfield and then he brilliantly won the Australian Cup with John Miller. Where were you? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm guessing I was suspended or, or, mm. or ill, I, um, either, either or. I'm not, I can't quite recall that one. Um, mm. I was certainly ill after he won, but um, mm. uh, yeah, JJ got the um, ride and having ridden him in the West, uh, and uh, yeah, I think he'd, he'd gone to the West, and I think he was over over the top um, mm. um, after the after the spring, and uh, he just didn't perform at his best, but. Um, he, he certainly came good. Uh, I was a bit worried when he ran um, place to Caulfield. Mm. Um, I was a bit worried that maybe he, he, that that Western Australian trip had, uh, had had taken too much out of him because he mm. he, he didn't like travelling much and he, he they had to offload him off the plane and he was shipped back across the Nullarbor mm. um, desert and record temperatures and I thought maybe that was the end of him. But oh, he was he, tough. He, he came good after that. Certainly did. You were back on for the Rose Hill Guineas three weeks later. Now, Brent, mm. I had a look at the replay again recently of his win in the Rose Hill Guineas. Surely that was one of his best ever runs. It was an awesome performance. Totally agree, John. I always rated that one of his best wins ever um, because he threw a wide alley and I had no option but to go, go back. So he was virtually, I don't know, second, third, last throughout the race and 
when I let him loose after the corner, I reckon he went by about 10 horses in mid, mid-air. Mm. Um, and, and he won by, I think, a length, length and a half going away. Mm. It was, uh, you know, those days, no inter- automatic timing. I, it would have been scary to what he would have run the la- last quarter. And, mm. Well, he was a horse who loved racing and needed racing, and Colin backed him up in the Tancred at Rose Hill, in which he beat all but a very good New Zealander in chivalry. And then came the first autumn derby in Sydney. He and Double Century cleared out from the others. Double Century ran you right off the track, and he was never going to keep the derby. No. Um, just... just uh, I. I was a little bit against um, him running in the tank, Tancred Stakes as a, as a three-year-old against the older older horses. I didn't personally think that he needed to do that to mm. go into the Derby, but I didn't train the horse. I was, you know, only his pilot, but mm. um, nonetheless, he started. And uh, I, 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 look, he 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 got the race. It was <laughs> it didn't go down well in some quarters, but. Um, John Trek was a chief steward in those those days, and um, there, mm. there, he and his panel saw fit for my my, uh, my uh, objection. And uh, as I say, like um, Mickey McLean, who was really our second jockey when I was riding for Colin Hayes, mm. uh, he, he was on double centre and carried me right out towards. When you saw the front on, right, you know, it was oh. an awful amount of ground that we carried. It was a yeah, big yeah. shift, a very yeah. big shift. Yeah. Oh yeah, and as. As you well know, uh, as well as I do, Randwick is very wide, and we we, we went out the long way. Yeah, you used a fair so, bit of track. <laughs> yeah, we well, don't like to win those races that that way, but that's that's the that's the game, and um, mm. uh, you know we we uh, we we got that race. So he was a dual derby winner at the end of the end of the day um, as as a three year old. So you know he was up, up amongst some of the greats that, that uh, won an a, a VRC and AJC derby. Yeah, absolutely. We'll just pause for a moment, Brent, to clear a commitment on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And when we come back, we'll talk about his following preparation, which saw him go to Dizzy Heights. Coming back yes. with Brent Thompson after this. A message for trainers of thoroughbred, standard bred and performance horses. Pride's Easy Feed would like you to know a little more about a new product called Energy Pack, a top-up feed designed to replace cracked or flaked corn in a horse's diet. Energy Pack comes in small cubes of extruded corn and full-fat soybean and is six times more digestible than raw corn. Energy Pack isn't a complete feed. You simply use it to top up your horse's normal ration. Energy Pack will help you to stay ahead in the war against acidosis. Energy Pack comes in 20 kilo bags and is a palatable con concentrated source of energy. Speaking of acidosis, Pride's also recommends Easy Light, a great tasting electrolyte. Its glucose and fruit flavoring is just the ticket for those fussy eaters. For best results, feed Easy Light as part of your horse's balance ration. Replace those lost salts and keep your horses on their water through the long hot summer. Pride's Easy Light and Pride's Energy Pack, a winning double from Pride's Easy Feed. Masters in the field of equine nutrition. Dulcify's first run back after a decent spell was in Adelaide, where he wasn't sighted, of course, in a 1,000-metre dash at Victoria Park. Then he went to Melbourne and uh, you won the Craig Lee stakes on him at Flemington. 
He then ran third in the Underwood. He easily won the Turnbull Stakes and then it was into the WS Cox Plate in which he started at 7-4, to 7-4 four. to four in a Cox Plate. Mm-hmm. Brady's winning margin was seven lengths from his old mate Chivalry. Surely mm. no horse in the world that day could have beaten him over 2,000 metres. No, you're 100% right there, John. Uh, he uh, I couldn't have been any more ridiculously confident uh, winning a Cox, Cox plate um, than on him because, you know, the previous horses that you mentioned are all, all good horses, or very good horses, but he was an exceptional horse and... Uh, uh, you know, I did did think I could win the race without a problem, and he, he, uh, he yeah, he, he look, he he won with that that sort of ease. I didn't have to even give him a a, a smack. Um, so I probably could have extended the the margin of which he would have held today, but um, there was no reason to there mm. was no reason to do that when you know he was going to be running in the Cox Plate uh, in the Melbourne Cup rather. That's right. Well, he was at the peak of his powers in the spring of 1979. He beat poor old Chivalry again in the McKinnon and he went out in the Melbourne Cup favourite at three to one. The tragedy Mm. of his breakdown is still hard to talk about. When did you first sense something was wrong? Um, Funny enough, I... Like everything went to to, uh, uh, plan uh, um, from the outset, and uh, um, I was was in the position that I wanted to be. And at the 1600 meter mark, thereabouts, um, he sort of went from travelling to off the bit, and Mm. uh, that was uh, that was most unusual for him. And uh, but you know, keep in mind you're going at a fair, still a fair gallop, and and he he didn't. He didn't feel like he'd broken down. Um, otherwise, he would have been pulled out of the race there and then. But to, he must have had a heart as big as himself because he kept on going to to about right on the point of the cor- corner where he uh, it, it was a stifle that he that he did, um, and obviously it gave gave way. Uh, so he went literally what eighteen hundred eight hundred meters mm-hmm. further with a, with a broken pelvis, uh, but. You know, when he when it obviously gave way, well, you know, you knew, knew something radically was wrong. Mm. Um, so, um, but luckily, luckily they all avoided me, and he never fell. Um, no, you kept him on him his feet miraculously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so lucky. Uh, uh, but you know, as soon as I dismounted, um, you know, it was clear that it was um, pretty bad. The television pictures that went all over the world and the press photos that absolutely dominated the sports pages the following day showed a shattered Colin Hayes and an equally distraught Brent Thompson staring at the horse in disbelief. He couldn't Mm. be saved, but he left a legacy that survives to this day when horsemen talk about the best they've seen. He had a massive motor... And he was unquestionably, Brent, the best horse you rode in two hemispheres. Yes, say that without reservation too, John. Uh, I, I Sadly, you know, uh, more, for more reasons than one, firstly, uh, Dulce by himself, but I think racing was v- very much robbed of 
he and um, Kingston Town not racing together, both in Sydney and Melbourne, because they would have packed packed um, grandstands to the rafters. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I was I was a great fan of Kingston Towns, but. Um, I, I think uh, I would have, uh, uh, you know, it would have been a great competition. Those two horses and both, both, uh, you know, Cox Plates and and Sydney races like the Queen Elizabeth and so on. Yeah. So racing was robbed. Um, he 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 had plenty to give. He he you know he was still a young horse. Um, mm. And in this day and age, you 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 take a horse like him overseas and race in the in the best best races. So mm-hmm. again, um, we were, we were all a bit robbed uh, mm-hmm. of of that because he he, he was a he was a best. Um, I rode, uh, you know, at the end of the end of the day, he had a, a sprint at the end of a race like nothing else. I sat on, especially mm-hmm. from a mile to a to a mile and a quarter. Yep. You spent seven unforgettable years as number one jockey for the Lindsay Park operation and that embraced three Melbourne jockeys' premierships. How would you describe your working relationship with the great Colin Hayes? How did you get on, bearing in mind that both of you were under pressure most of the time? I can look back on on that um, and... Uh, I can only think of about three instances where we, you know, cro- had crossed words, you know, and probably I deserved those, you know, like everyone, no one gets away with not, not having a, throwing in a bad, bad ride, um, whether it's, you know, your fault or circumstances, but at the end of the day, you're on the chopping block because, you know, you're sitting on the horse's back. Uh, but, you know, if it's, if you, you look at look at that three three times over seven years um, is uh, very minimum to say the least. And uh, mm. you know if we did if we did um, have have a have a, uh, a problem that was ironed out by Monday, and life went on. He was not one to dwell on the past, mm. and it was onwards and upwards. So um, look, uh, you know. Even even when I left and went back, went to England, you know, um, I came back and rode winners for um, CSAs uh, later. Um, so, uh, and and I, you know, obviously rode for Robert Sangster in England, which we'll get to. And um, so there was always that association there, anyway. Um, but uh, look, I I have to obviously the fact that Colin Hayes saw fit to bring me to to Australia to be have one of the biggest jobs in Australia at a young age, um, you know, he, he, he basically gave me a, a golden opportunity and uh, I guess I repaid him in the fact that we won three premierships together um, and uh, and the rest were still good years. Like, I think... I think maybe the furthest I finished was maybe fourth on the list in the in the others. So, mm. um, you know, they weren't disastrous years, just you <laughs> no. know, someone, someone, someone won it. <laughs> yeah. Let's dash through a few notable horses from your career. The first of two Caulfield Cup wins was on Gurners Lane in 1982. He was a pickup ride. The track was heavy. He went through it as though he had an outboard motor to win by six lengths. You couldn't ride him in the Melbourne Cup because you were committed to the Hayes Train triumphal march who'd won the Mooney Valley Cup 
but you gave him no hope in the Melbourne Cup. Loyalty, of course, kept you on him, but mm. you'd have given anything to ride Gurners Lane in that Melbourne Cup. Yeah, well, as we still see today, uh, the uh, Caulfield Cup form year after year stacks up and the fact that he, he won it so easily uh, in atrocious c- conditions, um, um, give it, given that, he, he, then he would have got a pen- penalty, but he had to be a major chance in the in the race. So uh, those days we... We would probably lack some stayers. That's why we didn't have a Caulfield uh, Cup runner, and I was able to pick up the ride. But uh, the Mooney Valley Cup was a qualifying race in the Melbourne Cup, and mm. Triumphal March um, uh, won it. And uh, I sort of had to had to stay on him. And although I, I and he had a very bad temper. Um, uh, uh, Triumphal March, and you just knew on the big day it'd boil over, mm. and. Uh, mm. That, that was that inevitably that ha- happened, but um, I knew he knew he couldn't win the win the race if he start, started the day day before because he just had the wrong temperament for it. Mm. But anyway, so that was you know that was one that got away from me. Given that, I would have had to ride, ride him as well as McDermott. So you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, yeah, he was it was obviously clearly a great start. He won a New, Newcastle Gold Cup leading up to that, John. He was it was yeah, he, you know, from the great the great line of Sir Patrick Patrick Hogan's. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Now uh, he beat Kingston Town, of course, in that nineteen eighty two mm. Cup. You yes. won another Caulfield Cup later on another heavy track on old Lord Reams, who beat the great yes. little horse Bozam. And then the following year, you won an Adelaide Cup on Lord Reams. But here's the one I've got to talk to you about. Much has been written about your 1988 Australian Cup win on a 125 to one shot called Dandy Andy, trained by the remarkable veteran Jim Searchy. He'd won the Doomben Cup the previous year, but his few runs leading into the Australian Cup were only fair. You rode him the only way you could, and that was to not spend a penny until the latter stages. There were only eight runners, which helped the cause a little. You got between horses. Uh, you loomed into second place straightening up, where Vaux Rogue must have been still six or seven lengths in front. Surely you didn't expect to run him down. No, quite right. Uh to be honest, I didn't want to ride him in the race. I, I, <laughs> Tim Havel, a journalist, always used to do Jim's old Jim's rides for him, and I tried desperately not to ride him in the race. I had a busy, busy day, and I thought I could do without this. And I wanted to watch, you know, a great race, Vogue Rogue and and Bone um, Bone Crusher, yeah, but Bone Crusher. And I thought, well, that, that, you know, this this will be a race to watch. I'd prefer to be sitting in the jockey's room and watching it. But anyway, jo- J- uh, Jim wore me down, and uh, I relented and and uh, rode him. And uh, well. It was always going to be a fast run race with Vaux Rogue anyway, and uh, and I just sort of sat back. And in those days, um, remember they had the eight eight hundred meter crossing, mm. and uh, and I was surprised to, to to find that I had a horse underneath me 
traveling all right and uh, mm. i think the race was best part of a million dollars right so when i when i went forward and ran into fourth i thought well you know that's better than just a losing ride check and uh, mm. and then we went past the third horse and uh, um it was a the the, the check was improving all the time, but I still didn't think I could win the win the race until about two hundred meters out, and uh, and I could see Vero not shortening stride, but I'm getting a bit bit closer to him, and in the end, I went past him on the fly and uh, oh, won by the length and a half. So to be to be to be honest, I was as dumbfounded as as anyone, and and mm. it's the first time I won a group group one race and got booed on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> because they rogue had an army of fans, didn't he? Oh yeah, they gave me they gave me absolute Larry Dooley on the way way in. It wasn't much fun, but uh, mm. anyway, uh, Jim was ecstatic, and he was owned by a great New Zealander Bob Ross, who owned mm. many good horses. Um, so it was a great surprise. I no one yeah. was more shocked than me to win the race. I can honestly say. Well, to this day, Brent, it remains one of racing's great mysteries. But to be fair. The horse raced out of his skin on the day. He looked strong, he looked fluent, and he thrashed Vorog and Bone Crusher, mm. two of the best yes. horses in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, he raced 25 more times after that, and he won only twice. Your only other ride on Dandy Andy was uh, a last in a seven-horse field in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes in Sydney. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 it still mystifies me that he won won that day. To be honest, um, mm. uh, and funny enough, my my youngest son Ben Ben was born uh, the the next morning. Mm. Um, so he's uh, thirty five. I think mm. that's roughly the the right. Um, the, the right uh, uh, going working backwards to the to the uh, date that he won the race. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, ben, was, ben, mm. ben was born in the early hours of the morning, so I had a, had a sleep sleepless night. You got the double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. you you got to know Robert Sangster very well, of course, during the Lindsay Park years, and it was no surprise when he suggested that you should test the water in Europe. Your first trip away brought some wonderful highlights. The jewel in the crown was probably your win on Gildoran in the famous Ascot Gull Cup of two and a half miles in the Swetnam Stud Colours. You led throughout two and a half miles. Yes, I... I got to ride um, with, with uh, I got the retain job with Barry Hills, who was one of Robert's main trainers in England, and uh, Steve Cawthon had taken up the job with uh, Henry Cecil, and I moved into the to the to the number one job at um, with Barry Hills, and Gildor had won the the, the Ascot Gold Cup the previous year with Steve on his back, and. Uh, he was a horse, John, that liked, even though he was a big, heavy horse, he liked to bounce off the, the ground and and uh, luckily there was no rain leading up to the Thursday at the uh, Royal Meeting and, uh, yeah, look, he, he'd run well in the previous uh, Cigaro Stakes at Sandown at his previous start, so he's on song and just needed the firm ground on the day. Um, he could pull a bit. Um, he was a heavy-headed horse, and and I I thought 
you know, that, uh, always thought it takes two to pull the horse, horse and the jockey. And uh, mm. I, I, uh, I just thought I didn't go with the fixation, but I just thought he was better off rolling along in front of knowing fully well that no one would really test him. Mm. Uh, and so I, I, I just set out with that, that in mind, and found the lead, lead easy and. And um, I always say it's a very lonely place to lead for two and a half miles, um, trying to get get the clock right. And uh, uh, when he, he had no one take him on, and then coming down towards the corner at um, after Swinley Bottom, there when you turn into Ascot, most most people won't realise unless you've been down down as far as that corner. There's a there's a bell goes off, uh, sort of like the 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 bell lap on the trots. Mm. And yeah. uh, that, that's that. That I thought. Well, I've I led this far. I might as well kick, <laughs> kick from kick for home now. And uh, and I did. And uh, long boat wore me down the last bit, but I I maintained. I think about a head to a neck uh, uh, advantage on the lines. Um, mm. But I guess you know if you put it in the real terms, and one you know amongst my best rides. You know, I think you know that that was up there amongst them to lead mm. that all that all that way um, yeah. and get home and and you know such an, a, a time honoured race mm. uh, and especially at the royal meeting itself. Brett, I'll ask you for a quick assessment of the following horses and the following races. Mm-hmm. This was around the time Strawberry Road was campaigning on the continent after being mm-hmm. sold to Ray Steer and John Singleton. You got the call to ride him in a Group 1 called the Grosser Prey von Baden over a mile and a half at Baden-Baden in Germany. And you were wearing the novel colours of green with a gold boxing kangaroo logo. A big day and a huge thrill to win that race in Germany. It was. uh, You know, I... um I'd ridden in Baden-Baden in the past, and it's a it's a great meeting. And uh, yes, to get the call up and ride ride him was out of the blue, and um, I was delighted to 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 do that. Um, actually, uh, on the on the day, uh, John Massara was there and Percy Sykes. Um, mm. So to win to win then those you know have a great Australians like that at the race was a thrill in itself, and. Mm. Uh, uh, beat uh, Gary Moore on a, on a horse trained by John Fellows, another Australian um, mm. uh, called Esprit de Nord. And the, actually, Gary objected to me, but um, he was never going to get 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 it, and we maintained <laughs> we retained the race. He's yeah. cheeky, cheeky lad. <laughs> it was nearly, it was nearly frivolous, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you look back on the many talented horses you rode in Europe, two stand alone. You had a massive opinion of a brilliant mare called Committed, bred in the US, trained in Ireland by Dermot Weld and owned by Robert Sangster. She won 17 of 30 starts, several at the elite level. Now, an indirect question, a hypothetical question, Brent. Could she have won a race like the Everest? No, no doubt in my mind, John. Mm. Uh, she was except. She was exceptional. Um, yeah, she was twice European uh, champion sprinter. Uh, she won two two Prix de la Bays, which are on Arc Day. Um, I was back in Australia each time, but um, um, Steve Cawthon rode her, and um, Michael Ganane rode her the second time. 
but she she would have yeah she would have won any any of these major sprints in this this country. She was really exceptional. Mm. And a quick and she raced against some great great uh, sprinters. One which yes. were, most people don't know Habiti. Mm. Absolutely, Shawblade was another one you rated very very highly. Trained by Barry Hills for Sheikh Mohammed, he was a good two year old and an even better three year old. Yes, he at his very first attempt, he, he won at Newmarket, beating Green Green Desert, who was an exceptional turned out to be an exceptional sprinter, and uh, and a sire. And uh, then he went to Royal Ascot at, uh, at his very next start, and won the Coventry Stakes, and and uh, he raced. So he's the same age as Dancing Brave, and he raced in his year in the in the, in the Guineas. Um, uh, um, my memory served me correctly. He was fourth in that, but he wasn't quite right at that point. He then went and won the. He wouldn't have beaten Dancing Braves, though. Not get me wrong. He 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 he, he was ex- he's the best horse I've ever seen, Dancing Brave. Mm. And uh, 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 anyway, then he won the St James St James's Palace. Well, that's a stallion making race. Uh, he he won the Queen Elizabeth at Ascot. Uh, and he, I think he had a total of six race starts and retired, um, probably having won four of the uh, three or four, no, four of those. Uh, I thought he was he was a you know very high high class horse and would be a stallion, but he he didn't quite do that. Uh, but no. he was a lovely lovely athletic an- animal, and I just assumed he'd make a very good stallion. But mm. um, he was he was he was. To win all those races, you know they're they're all both uh, all time honoured races. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, fortunate to ride him. Yeah, Brent's talking about a horse called Shaw Blade. He rated him one of the two best he rode in Europe. Now, Brent, we're just about out of time, but I've got to ask mm-hmm. you this one. In preparing for this podcast, I felt compelled to ask about your background in the marriage stakes. And I must admit, I was surprised to learn that you've been married not once, not twice, but thrice. Your first wife, Judy, is a daughter yes. of the former master trainer, Eric Ropier, and the mother of your daughter, Kylie, who lives in New Zealand, and Kylie, in turn, is the mother of your only grandchildren, Heidi and Carter. Yes, yes, Um well, I I was young, um, and uh, I'd been with a ju- boyfriend girlfriend of Judy for for a long long time. And uh, as you mentioned, Eric Rapier, well, he was one of the greatest uh, of New Zealand trainers. They still talk about him today. Mm-hmm. Um, he had success on this side of the world with horses like uh, Aluk, uh mm-hmm. fans and Melbourne Cups, and mm-hmm. he trained the great Raja Saab. In fact, um, uh, John. Uh, but yes, we we um, I, I I guess Judy wasn't really enamoured with with Australia. She was quite family orientated, and mm. and um, anyway, we we did have um, Kylie, and and as you say, in turn, she's got two two grandchildren. She's a wonderful mother, and has brought them up beautifully. Um, and uh, they live in Palmerston North, and um, and I always go go down there to see her and. 
my grandchildren and my sister um, every time I go back to New Zealand um, for mm. our sales. So that that's always first first yeah. on the agenda. Lovely. Um, always do that. Yeah. Your second wife, Cheryl, is the mother of your two sons, Alex and Ben, who both live in Melbourne, and I know you have regular contact. And your third wife is Samantha, who's the mother of your youngest daughter, Charlotte, who's now 24, and you tell me working in the music field. Yeah, she's in the, in the music field. She's in the music events, really, and uh, she uh, that's a chosen field um and uh we speak uh, i don't I don't get to sydney that much but every time i do obviously we, we we catch up but um she's she's very close as well so with all, all my children despite obviously broken marriages um we i have a good great relationship with them all and obviously that that's important to them as well as me mm. um but um i'm, I'm probably uh, I might have been good as a as a jockey, but um, not very good as a as a husband. By the sounds of it, John, <laughs> you speak with great affection of all of the family uh, from days yes. gone by, and I know that will continue for a, the rest of your life. You know, your journey in racing has brought you many honours, including inductions into the New Zealand and Australian halls of fame. Congratulations, Brent, on all you've achieved and thank you for taking this wonderful trip down memory lane with our podcast regulars. I've enjoyed our chat enormously. Been a pleasure, John, and um, and thank you very much uh, for uh, for uh, allowing me to be on one of your po- podcasts. And that podcast was produced, of course, by Supernova Sound and our special guest, former champion jockey, international jockey, Brent Thompson. Most agree the best Randwick Guineas winners to date have been Weekend Hustler, It's a Done Deal, Kemantari and The Autumn Sun. But it's worth remembering the 2022 winner Converge defeated Animo. The race superseded the time-honoured Canterbury Guineas, which was inaugurated in 1935 and won by Hadrian. Big name winners thereafter were Delta, Todman, Martello Towers, Imogeel, Viander Cross and Octagonal. Between 1985 and 89, four fillies won the Canterbury Guineas. Spirit of Kingston, Longshot Dolcezza, Brilliant New Zealander Tidal Light and Robert Sangster's Riverina Charm. It was then nine years before another filly won, and that was Tycoon Lil for Colin Gillings and Grant Cooksley. Easily the most successful Canterbury Guineas trainer was Tommy Smith with an amazing 11 wins. The most dominant jockey was George Moore with six. The last winner of the old Canterbury Guineas was Jim Carew, trained by Bob Thompson for the Banjo Club and ridden by Glenn Boss. Inaugural winner of the Randwick Guineas was Hotel Grand for Anthony Cummings, Jay Ford and the Bangalore Stud Syndicate. It's hard to believe the 19th edition of the Randwick Guineas is coming up on March 9, supported by the Group 1 Canterbury Stakes, as the Sydney Autumn Carnival gets into top gear.